I literally had to compose myself. I don't know if I've ever needed a song so much and enjoyed it as well as that. Thank God. Praise the Lord. Mm, mm, mm. It's good to be together in worship. What a gift and a privilege and a treasure. I want to make one plea to you. And then after that plea, share with you a pair of short videos to encourage you in our season of missions. And then come behind those videos and share with you some things very important. One of the great ministries of our church that allows us to do what we do is our ministry to children and to their families. And particularly, our ministry to children and their families during worship services and other gatherings. And in order to make that happen, we need a host of volunteers to sign up and be a part of our extended teaching care ministry that goes on during the time that we have services. gives the parents the freedom to be with us in services when they have small children that they leave in our extended teaching care and in our our nursery area. And so we put inside your worship guide this week this card. If everybody would grab that real quick. Pull it out of your worship guide. That's twice I've asked you to do that this morning. Maybe the best workout a worship guide's ever gotten. All right. If you'll pull that out real quick. And it simply says, yes, I can. And when we have it fully stopped and everybody on board, you only have to do this ministry one time per quarter. That's once every 12 or so weeks. And so uh, sometimes when we're not as well staffed, it's a little more frequent uh, than that, like once every eight or ten weeks. But when it's fully staffed, ideally, you would only have to do that about four times a year. And so we really need you to be a part of that ministry. And if you will take this and fill it out and say, yes, I can. And typically, if you're a reasonably able-bodied person, You can endure the hour and a half and sometimes a little longer, hour and 45 minutes. And on special occasions, yeah, hour and 50 minutes, um, you can be a part of this and you can help us and bless Wendy. Now, once you fill this out, there's a lot of ways you could give it to us. Uh, The best way is to give it to a staff member as you leave today in the lobby If you just totally couldn't find somebody, leave it on one of the tables in the lobby. We just need your name, your email, and your cell number. The reason we're asking for cell numbers, except for Melvin, uh, everybody here is going to have, Melvin may have gotten one, but uh, you have a cell number. Bill just upgraded his cell phone. His was so old he'd open it up and say, Sarah, get me 243. Uh, So (laughs) if you're an Andy Griffith fan, you'll like that. We need your help. So would you do that for us today? Fill it out, hand it to one of us, get it to us. That would be awesome. Also, our budgets are out. We put them out this morning on your way out. You can pick those up. We'll discuss them uh, this coming Wednesday night in a special called members meeting. And just go over it, whatever you want to ask about it. Uh, the Anthony and others, myself, will all be available, Richard, to talk before then. Um, and we'll kind of go through it real well Wednesday 
And then two weeks from today, we'll vote on that without discussion, just as a churchwide vote on a Sunday morning by way of a little ballot that we'll hand out to you. So we appreciate that. Lynn, go ahead and roll these two quick videos I want you to see as we kick off our season of missions. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Not just a couple of you, but all of you. God's still calling people. He hasn't stopped. Not just to be pastors, not just to be teachers, not just to be local missionaries, but to reach all the nations. We can do all things through Christ. We have to choose to do exactly what He's asked us to do. We realize that we cannot do it alone. God calls me to be obedient, calls us to be obedient. But really, the work is totally dependent upon Him and what He has planned. People are coming in and they're seeing new life. They're seeing people who've been changed by the gospel. Someone from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will be at the foot of Jesus. This is, this is living. This is joy. This is satisfaction. This is reward. This is what we were created for. It's what we're wired by God to do. And it's when we do that that, yes, we'll risk certain things in this world, but we'll realize real quickly that the risk is far outweighed by the reward. two years ago. This work, it's the difficult part. Those first stages in farming. There's several challenges to reaching Tibetans. 24 different Tibetan people groups with a distinct language, a distinct culture. I mean, they view each other completely different. To get to them is so time-consuming. It might be like the tops of the earth. Those last few places for someone to believe because of the difficulty to get to them. I love mountains, and I love God. Most of the highest mountains in the world is where the Tibetan people are. On the outside, the tip of the iceberg seems nice and friendly. Underneath there, there's a lot of emptiness. There's a lot of hopelessness, and really a lot of walls. It's very difficult for a Tibetan to come to know Christ and to follow Him. And so there's a lot of barriers to the gospel. But we're seeing now more and more stories of people who have been very resilient to the gospel that are now coming to Christ. There's also a lot of isolated believers, you know, spread out throughout the Himalayas. But they're very few and very far between. Perfect Tibetans who have not yet come to know Him. But He'll reveal Himself to them. Whether it be someone sharing, reading the gospel for the first time. But He'll continue to make ready the people to hear about who He is. Please pray for Tibetan brothers who are struggling as they've been separated from their families because of their faith. There's so many things that are in their way. So much persecution. Pray that they would share more boldly form churches and groups. They'll gain more understanding and wisdom from the scripture as God continues to reveal that to them. This is such a huge, huge task to reach all these different Tibetan Buddhists dispersed all across the Himalaya Mountains. And this task is so big. Please pray for our team 
as we battle a lot of different obstacles to the gospel. Pray that we'll be able to form a strategy that comes straight from the Lord on how to reach people around us. Pray that we'll be faithful to continue to take up our cross daily and sacrifice whatever is necessary for people to come to know who He is. Just pray that our, our love for the people will continue to grow so that we can be more effective as we continue to share with people throughout the country. This week kicks off a very special time in the life of the church, a season of missions. Steve did such a good job introducing it last week, and I'm very thankful for him. And the season of missions is a time that we celebrate our call to go globally, to go internationally, and to make sure that every tribe and tongue and nation have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. At this moment, and I'll be giving you some more statistics in the coming week, there are about 3 billion of the 7.2 billion people on earth who have absolutely no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should weigh heavy on us and concern us. The season of missions among Southern Baptists is called the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Now, inside your worship guide for the third time today, you have the week of prayer guide. Now, this is a wonderful tool for you to pray daily this week as we focus on international missions. Now, if you'll go to imb.org, which you can find written inside this guide, there is a video for every day. The second little video you watch today was the video for today. The first was the introduction by David Platt, and then the second video spoke of the work that's going on in the high mountain culture in Asia, Central Asia, South Central Asia, and how God is at work there, and how you are sending them by the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So you have this. I hope you'll use this this week as a daily prayer guide. Go to imb.org and go and watch the videos daily. Pray daily for those folks as they are gathering together. What I want to encourage you in today is in the passage that Andrew read today, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we studied the glories of that passage many times in the life of our church, and we've heard it probably as believers through our lives. One of the greatest things that we can do about a passage like that is to give a living illustration. And no one fits that better in modern times than Lottie Moon. So what I want to do today is introduce you to Lottie Moon. There's a great picture of her here. Tell you about her life and why Southern Baptists hold her up as a great example of world missions. I want to recommend three books If you'll take a moment, I've left in your notes just some lines you can take notes on. It was really hard to outline a person's life. And so I just left you some lines. If you would write down, this is probably the most famous of the books. It's called The New Lottie Moon Story. It's not new anymore, but when it was published, it was new. And it's considered sort of the the watermark book on her life. It's outstanding. So I want to encourage you with that. Several years after that, 
someone got together doing the most intensive research ever done on her life, and they put together this. It's called Send the Lights by Keith Harper, and it is the the letters she wrote from China to the U.S. that ended up being the very thing that caused us to form a, a group that would pray and give annually to support Southern Baptist global missions. You see all these little bookmarks I have in here. There's so many rich moments in this book. Tear-jerking, heart-wrenching. She served for so long over there. I'll talk to you about her life. Those two books I would encourage you to have on your shelf. And then one more that I own on Kindle. It's by the professor and... Um, and president of Southeastern Seminary, Danny Aiken, and the name of the book is simply Ten Who Changed the World. And in that book is a brief cover of Lottie Moon's life and ministry, and he does a great job introducing missionaries to us through that book, Ten Different Missionaries and How They Impacted Our World. So I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the life of Lottie Moon. And before I do that, I like celebrating really big deals in our church. There's a couple in our church today that this week are celebrating 65 years of marriage. You're talking about missionaries. Gary and Betty, would you all stand? The Fosters, give them a hand, honor them. 65 years of marriage. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) I couldn't help but mention that. That's just awesome. I'm so excited. Lottie Moon. Charlotte Diggs Moon. When she would introduce herself in her first time in school, she would tell people that D standed for devil. She didn't know that that would be a precursor to what she would be called when she arrived in China. She would initially be called devil woman. And that would be the resistance that she would meet. She was born December the 12th in 1840. That part is the first part of why we celebrate this offering at Christmas time. She began life as a part of the pre-Civil War Southern landed aristocracy. Very wealthy. She attended, starting at 14 years of age, the Virginia Female Seminary Institute. That happened at 1854. She left home, moved to the school, studying Latin, French, English, and math. She was there while the school was reconstituted in 1855 to what was called the Hollins Institute. Shortly after her time there, she went on to the Albemarle Female Institute in 1857 and received a diploma in 1858 with a specialty in Latin and ancient languages. This was a very interesting young lady because during all this time, having grown up in a Christian home, she was not a Christian. Her intellect, 
her reading of other languages and lore made her a little bit hesitant and resistant to the gospel. In fact, it was not until December of 1958 that she went to a meeting early one morning that was preparatory for a revival service that was going to be preached by the famous Dr. John A. Broadus, pastor of the Charlottesville Baptist Church and great Baptist statesman. She had, the night before this meeting, planned to go to the meeting to disturb it. College-age students were going to gather that morning And they were going to gather for prayer to pray for people that they wanted the Lord to save during the messages and services that Dr. Broadus was going to bring to that area. And so they were going to gather that morning and Charlotte, Lottie, had said, you know, I'm going to go to that and I'm going to be a scoffer and I'm going to trouble them. Well, after having planned that, that night, a dog barked all night long and kept her awake until finally, in the middle of the night, she began pondering the state of her soul. That was no surprise because the top person on the prayer meeting prayer list was Charlotte Moon. They were going to gather that morning, and part of their gathering was going to be to pray for her. Well, she arrived at that meeting heart disturbed, and the meeting had actually Dr. Broadus there. They had some conversation. She had come that day to make fun and spent all of the next night again awake in prayer. And shortly afterward, professed her faith December 21st of the year 1958. And so here she was, 18 years old, college student, hesitant, bit recalcitrant, giving her life to Christ, and everyone around her noticed a sudden, incredible change in her life. During all of this time, the great John Broadus always said the same thing to all of the college students in that area, at the female college, at the male college, and at the church. He said the same thing. He went to those students and said, the world has a need for the gospel. There are millions sinking down in sin without Christ, and the world has a need for the gospel. And then he would look at all of the students that were gathered, whether in church or at the student ministries, when he would gather them at the colleges, both men, young men, and young women, and he would say to them, you students can supply the need for the gospel to go to the whole world. And then afterward he would say as his third thing always, there is no reason not to go.
preaching that time after time, week after week, month after month, it broke through into the heart of Lottie Moon. But as you know, in that age, the idea of sending a woman into missions was almost unheard of except she be married. And so the idea of sending a single woman was almost utterly out of the question. Something happened during that time. Something that it's really hard for us to imagine. During the time she was getting ready for graduation, during the time that she received what was later called the status of most educated woman in the whole South. She was called most scholarly of the graduates at her school. She could freely read Greek and Latin with such proficiency that the professors would take her to the other administration to have them hear her. She became proficient in Greek, Latin, Italian, French, Spanish, and through independent study became a scholar in Hebrew. Five women, the first in a southern institution or earned by women of the South, received for the first time in history a master of arts considered to be the most educated woman in the South, and as she was graduating, the Civil War broke out. 1861. The Civil War would have an incredible effect on everything and everyone. She spent during the Civil War several years privately tutoring other people. And then it led finally to the collapse of her family fortune. She wrote these words to a friend. I do not believe that any trouble comes upon us unless it is needed. And it seems to me that we ought to be just as thankful for sorrows as for joys. Recalling John A. Broadus' prayer when he said these words, Send us affliction and trouble. Blight our dearest hopes if need be, that we may learn more fully to depend upon Thee. Well, something happened in those years from 1861 to 1865 that was going to have a huge impact on her life and on all missionary endeavor and truly in the lives of most women in America at the time. So many men would be killed in the Civil War that there would literally be a shortage of men. Nationally, So many would die on battlefields in cities and towns and countryside that men falling by these grave numbers that you see when you read the history of the Civil War. Her family members, her friends, those who had been trained in all kinds of fields would go to war and they would die. And suddenly, by the time the war ends, a shift in culture comes because there are not enough men to field for missions. There are not enough men to field for professorships. 
for school teachers, all kinds of positions that previously had been kept from women, now out of sheer necessity, the doors opened. And for Lottie Moon, that meant a huge opportunity. She took a job as a necessity as her family fortune collapsed and their family ran out of money. She had to take a job at the Danville Female Academy. At that academy, she was going to make a connection for the first time. She worked there in the years 1866 to 1871. But sometime in those pre-war years, there had been a connection with that school and a missionary to China by the name of G.W. Burton. He had come to that school in the pre-war years and encouraged that school to rally to give to missionaries in China. So she first makes this China connection in this school. And then she meets a missionary formerly serving in China, A.B. Cabanas, and she begins to hear the work in China the millions there of the population, of the need, of the gospel opportunities, and God was brewing in her heart such glorious truth. And then she answered the call to missions. I'll share with you from one of the books She has this series of letters, and the letters are really interesting because they kind of tell you where she is along the way. And in 1873, January the 13th, she sent this letter to Dr. Tupper, who was the head of the board that would be sending missionaries. And she said, Years ago, I very much desired to be a missionary, but it was not then the policy of our board to send out single ladies. So you know this shift has occurred now. The war came about the time I had completed my education and I could not have gone even if there had been the change in views on the part of the board. Meantime, I have given a promise which I feel in honor bound to keep unless the lady will release me from it. It was a pledge to take care of her children in case of her death. About two years ago, I thought of offering myself to the Foreign Mission Board. That's what the IMB was called at the time. But was restrained by that promise. I am thinking of writing her and asking her to release me from that promise. I write to you now and beg you not to let it be known publicly that I desire to come. So that's in January of 1873. She knows she's called to missions, but she has made a promise to care for Someone young if the parent dies. And so, bound by that promise, she's staying in the United States. But during that time, she inquires. And after the inquiry, she is released. And after the release, listen to the next letter that we have in her history. This letter comes from November the 1st of the same year. And here's what she says. At our doors is the very work we crave. The heathen are literally all around us. I have already had the pleasure of going with my sister on some of her visits to the native women. 
Much tact is necessary in dealing with these, as the aversion to foreigners is still strong. Some will not admit us at all. Others listen coldly with evident restraint. Only a few hear the word gladly. Nevertheless, we must sow beside all waters. We know that God's word cannot return void. So from that January time and the release, she made all the preparations, got everything together, and landed in the mission field where she would serve for all of those years. But it was a hard trip over. Historians recorded for us that she had 25 continuous days of seasickness from the day she set out from the States to the day that she landed at the first point of entry in the Orient. 25 days of intense seasickness. Once she got there, she made a transfer to another ship to make the short journey, only a 24-hour journey from Nagasaki to Shanghai. On that journey, their boat was hit by a hurricane. Full force. The boat was so intensely torn that she could hear the rooms being torn from the deck of the ship. The strong men on the ship took to drinking strong alcohol to calm their fears because it was so certain that they were all going to die. Some of the missionary men prayed and stayed strong and encouraged her. The boat was nearly destroyed. The hurricane soon passed. And she said these words. She said, I should scarcely be surprised to see a divine form walking upon the mad waste of howling waters, saying to me, It is I, be not afraid. The boat was blown all the way back to its original origin there in Nagasaki. The storm blew over, they got a new boat, made the journey, and she landed and went to work then in the place that she would spend most of the rest of her days. October 25th of that same year, 1873, she landed in Chao, and there she would first be called the devil woman and the foreign devil. Foreigners were unwelcome there in a city of 80,000. There were six Southern Baptist missionaries and six Presbyterian. And they were unwelcome and lived quite dangerously there. She was not willing to give up. She began sending letters as she ministered among the Chinese, as she fell in love with them, she began sending out pleas. And this was where she became most famous in the States because these letters started arriving and being published. And she says this, What we need in China is more workers. The harvest is very great. The laborers owe so few. Why does the Southern Baptist Church lag behind in this great work? Our Presbyterian brethren are putting us to shame. 
Their missions established since the war are strong in young men in all the vigor of early manhood. We rejoice that these have taken a high stand in China and that they are doing a noble work and we are glad others are expected to join them. But when the veteran missionaries of our church shall fall at their posts after lives of unselfish devotion, where, we sadly ask, are their successors? What's she asking? Mission work in that day was so hard that you typically died from it. The missionaries didn't have a lot of the things that we know of and understand today. And the work was so demanding, the climate so severe, the persecution so difficult, that they were literally falling at their posts and Lottie Moon was watching it. And she started sending letters back to the state saying, Hey, young men, young women, where are the reinforcements for these veterans who are dying in service? This would become a call that she would constantly be sending out. And she says this, She says, I think your idea is correct that a young man should ask himself not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. The command is so plain. Go. These letters started trickling back and taking hold and taking root and having an impact. Later she would write, Oh, that we had many active and zealous men who would go far and wide scattering books and tracts and preaching the word to the vast multitudes of this land. The Northern Presbyterian Church has such men. So has the Scottish Presbyterian Church. Why does our church lag so slowly? Where we send one man, other churches send scores. I understand that our Northern Brethren sent 20 new missionaries to Burma last year. I earnestly hope Excuse me, I earnestly long for the time when men and women of our Southern Baptist churches shall fully awaken to the great work of sending the gospel to the nations. Later on, in order to economize, she didn't take the full pay that was offered to her, but reduced it so that she could live as simply as possible, so that she would be the least burden on the board as possible. It was amazing the economy that she began to live in. And then things began to grow more difficult. She began to describe her work as the work of three or four missionaries, not just men, not just women, but men. She began to talk about the burdens of reaching out and the needs, and her heart began to pour out. And then she says this, We implore you to send us Help! Let not these heathens sink down into eternal death without one opportunity to hear that blessed gospel which is to you the source of all joy and comfort. It was amazing, her commitment. She would not quit. Year after year, letter after letter, she would tell... 
Affairs are still in a very unsettled state. The great men in Chifu, English ambassadors and Chinese grand secretary are trying to come to terms of agreement. Meanwhile, trade becomes depressed. Add to this the scarcity and high price of food, the low price of silver, famines in the West, the wildest delusions in Suchow and neighborhoods, the murder of Catholic missionaries, and you have a state of affairs grave to the extreme. We can compare the Suchow delusions only to the witchcraft mania in Massachusetts. These people state that paper men, speaking of white-skinned people, have come, sent out to cut off pigtails of the Chinese. These paper men are sent out by the missionaries and the Catholics. Another delusion was that they had come to enslave them. And all of this was fighting against their work every day. So much so, she writes this letter, Mr. Richard of English Baptist Missions has plunged like the nobleman he is into the heart of the famine district. He is reported to have 400 orphans under his care. There is something terrible to me as well as heroic in the idea of thus contending alone and single-handed against the grim famine frenzy. Yet, Mr. Richard is doing it with no thought of glory or reward, only intent to follow in his master's footsteps. Suddenly, a shift came in her life. It was incredible. She now would more identify with her people group with whom she served than even with her homeland. And she started writing letters that exposed us in our frivolity. This was one of the most powerful ones she wrote. A mission here in Pingtu, consisting of three families, two unmarried women, once started, would not be very expensive luxury for Southern Baptists. With no paid assistance and no foreign houses or churches, no boarding schools, such a mission, once set going, could easily be carried on annually at a cost of $6,000. Wouldn't such an investment pay better, say, than $25,000 contributed by one man for a memorial church in a city already supplied with churches? Why can't we have a memorial mission? Something was going to be born from this letter. Something was going to be awakened in Southern Baptists. A memorial mission fund. She had no idea that this letter would spark such a thing. A memorial mission fund? What? It began brewing. When will some rich Baptist come forward and start a mission which would give the gospel to some hundreds of thousands of people? When will some church say, we will sustain one missionary in Ping too? Not only say it, but raise the money for the missionary. Something was brewing. I'm leading you to some, uh, to this grand conclusion of our life. And I wish I had about ten hours to tell you, but I'm going to hustle to it now. She now writes the most famous of all of her letters. The letter is historically called an earnest appeal. It was a letter that would stingingly touch the hearts of Southern Baptists all the way until today. 
And here's what she said. With that omniscience which awakens the wondering admiration of the uninitiated, a Baptist editor declared last week that it would be impossible for those who embrace the new theology to take a strong interest in foreign missions. That belief in a second probation is incompatible with earnest effort for the conversion of the heathen. What was this? It was a move of a thing called hyper-Calvinism. It was a move that said missions are no good. Baptists have had a strong and good, healthy Calvinistic heritage along with the stream of an Arminian heritage. Those have dwelt together in beauty. But there came this seed of an idea that there was no cause to do missions whatsoever. And it started to move through the United States. Lottie Moon, though herself strongly indebted to the training that set her in Reformed doctrine, strongly holding to those stewards of grace that had taught the years before in her growing up, who held to the great Baptist doctrine, saw this insidious thing growing. And she said, Pondering the question of the indifference of Southern Baptist to missions in the new light cast upon my ignorance by this wise editor, I conclude that the large majority of Southern Baptists have adopted the new theology. Else, why this strange indifference to missions? Why this scant contributions? Why does money fail to be forthcoming when approved men and women are asking to be sent and proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to the heathen? The needs of these people press upon my soul. I cannot be silent. It is grievous to think of these human souls going down to death without even one opportunity of hearing the name Jesus. People talk vaguely about the heathen, picturing them as scarcely human, or at best, as ignorant barbarians. Oh, if they could live among them as I do, they would find in the men much to respect and admire, in the women and girls, they would see many sweet and loving traits of character. They would feel, pressing upon their conscience, the duty of giving the gospel to them. It does seem strange that when men and women can be found willing to risk life, or at least health and strength, in order that these people may hear the gospel, that Christians withhold the means to send them. Once more, I urge upon the consciences of my Christian brethren and sisters the claims of these people among whom I dwell. Here I am working alone in a city of many thousand inhabitants with numberless villages clustered around or stretching away in the illuminate distance. How many can I reach? It fills one with sorrow to see these people so earnest in their worship of false gods, seeking to work out their supposed salvation by works of merit, with no one to tell them of a better way than to remember the wealth hoarded in Christian coffers, the money lavished on fine dresses and costly living. It, is it not time for Christian men and women to return to the simplicity of earlier times? Should we not press it home upon the consciences that the sole object of our conversion was not the salvation of our own souls, but that we might become co-workers with our Lord and Master in the conversion of the world. That's why her picture's up here. She wrote this stinging letter 
to the conscience of Southern Baptists. It rocked. It shook. It jolted. She was not bitter. She was bold. Transpiring over a number of years, I'm going to fast forward you. Listen to these words. The year is 1912. She has served since 1873, pouring her life those 30 years over and over and over into the lives there. It says now in her biography, but by now Miss Moon had totally lost her objectivity as a foreign missionary. She was no longer an aloof emissary who arrived to give the heathen glad tidings. She could no longer divide people into us and them. The Chinese people and Lottie Moon were one. She took on their struggles one by one as they appeared at her door. The school of women was now an hostel for beggars. She not only doled out pittances to those who asked, but took them into their home, her home. Among her co- company of feeble women was one who had attempted suicide in the face of her inability to get food. In her hunger and starvation, she had thrown herself over a bridge into a stony, dry riverbed. It was a famine. There was no water. But she was slow to die. She lay helplessly as the sun parched her wounds. Miss Moon heard of the scene and went at once to rescue her. Soon the pitiful creature was lying on one of Miss Moon's freshly clean Chinese kongs. The repulsive body protested as gentle hands untangled her snarled hair, cleansed the gummy eyes, treated the inflamed wounds, scrubbed the grimy fingernails. Food came with it, and with it small fo- the small foreign woman speaking words of comfort. For weeks she lived in this luxury as Lottie Moon spoke to her of one God who sent His Son to suffer so that poor women might be uplifted. Gradually the sufferer's anguished face grew peaceful. Perhaps she had understood the message. The missionary who saw Miss Moon laboring with this miserable wretch of a woman dying could not help thinking, wasted alabaster? The story of the woman breaking open the alabaster jar and pouring it out on Jesus. Was Lottie Moon, the talented, brilliant Miss Lottie, A wasted gift poured out on such a specimen? Or was she the very personification of our Savior? In the summer of 1912, there grew among the mission families a concern about Miss Moon. 
A gentle conspiracy was hatched. Various children of the mission family were sent to spend days with or near Miss Moon. On these vacations, the children were to run errands and keep Miss Moon cheered up. One boy from the gospel mission, remembering tedious lectures delivered by Mrs. Crawford, was reluctant to deal with another elderly woman. However, he found Miss Moon full of fun and modern ideas. The little Newton girls enjoyed their stay, but when they reported that Miss Moon's eyes were too weak to see the bugs crawling in her cereal, her fine cook was growing old and looked rather emaciated. Yet Miss Moon was still on the job. Missionaries were very busy. She continued to work and to labor. She recounted, if I had known my heart's desire and prayer to God... For these people is that they might be saved, but privacy, her anguish mounted, her bank book reflected her concerns, large bills for coal, contributions to the famine relief fund, small loans to other missionaries and to some of the Chinese, books for the schools, which always cost more than the board allowed, rent for the chapel where the school children went to worship. And finally, late in the summer of 1912, a strange note in the side of her bank book said, I pray that no missionary will ever be as lonely as I have been. Later that year, the famine grew so severe that Lottie Moon chose not to eat anymore. She said that it would be better that she a saint should starve to death than for one unsaved Chinese to starve. Miss Turner took her meals to her, and that is when the mission learned the true state of affairs. Miss Moon had ceased to eat so that her impoverished Chinese might be fed. Frail 50 pounds filled with superhuman strivings were all that remained of Lottie Moon when she was carried on board the Manchuria ship. Cynthia Miller arranged to sleep in Miss Moon's cabin, for the patient could not be neglected for a moment. Dr. Hearn brought aboard a supply of Miss Moon's favorite grape juice and special food for invalids. He conferred gravely with the ship's captain and doctor who promised the best of care if she lived in a decent burial if she died. Hearn doubted that she could survive the trip, but he believed it was the only hope. He bade her farewell. But the damage had been inflicted, and there was nothing to do but to prepare for the care of the shell of a missionary who would live in America. The Foreign Mission Journal summarized her life. One of the oldest women missionaries ever one of the first single women missionaries ever, educator, evangelist, alone in her station for months at a time, brave, devoted to Chinese women and girls, the best man among all missionaries. Her passing left a sorrowful gap in Ting Chow. In China, 
the executive of her, of her estate, W.W. W. Adams, with a broken heart, sold off all her personal property and cleared her bank account of $254. The heiress of Viewmont did not have enough estate to pay her way to get her body back home. She died in the harbor. But something was said afterwards that I want you to weigh. It's inscribed on a monument that's in China. It's barely readable now. For 20 or more years, new converts would testify, when I was a child, I followed Old Lady Moon and learned hymns from her. Successful businessmen would say, she gave me my start. And many women in remote villages would ask, when will the heavenly book visitor come back to visit us again? The Chinese people who mourned Lottie Moon did not speak of her noble education, her brilliant mind, or her lofty ideals. They said what is written on this monument. How she Loved us. Everybody here is going to have a monument. A memory. A memorial of their life. All of us. Will the people somewhere in this world say of any of us, How he, how she loved us. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, Acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and perfect in the sight of God. Would you bow with me? I want to invite you first to the very Jesus Lottie Moon preached taught, shared. He loves you. He came as a sacrifice, as a Savior, living sinlessly, God in human skin, dying as your substitute on the cross, a sacrifice paying for your sins. The Bible says He was raised again on the third day. And He ascended after 40 days and sits at the right hand of God. And if you would turn from your sin right now, you would know the joy that Lottie Moon lived her life for. The joy of knowing and telling Jesus. Would you come to Him? Believer, would you today take an assessment of what you own? Everything. Everything. And measure. And think. 
and ponder, what shall I do for the cause of global missions? How shall I honor my Lord Jesus and recognize the wonderful example given to us in the life of a dear sister in Christ? I tell people frequently when they think to ask me, what do you think you'll do in heaven? I might get to cut Lottie Moon's grass. That'd be my joy. That'd that'd be exactly my joy. I'd be her yard man. That'd be awesome. Would you give yourself, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, as a living sacrifice today? Would you stand as God stirs your heart? Would you respond?